I invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible, please don't feel afraid to look in the table of contents. Matthew's kind of a little past the middle. If you see Mark, Luke, John, just go back a little bit. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. It'll be really helpful to have it in front of you. Well, my name is Micah Spansel, and uh, believe it or not, I am not in high school. Um, I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm actually the pastor of our student ministries, and uh, it is a, such a sweet blessing. Uh, I think students are all in this service, so uh, thankful to have you guys with us for a second service. And I've just been so thankful for the opportunity to get to know the students and um, live life with them and for all of us to follow Jesus more together. Um, so I love you guys, and I love this body, this church. Thank you guys so much for welcoming Morgan and I here to make it such a sweet family. Uh, we really do love it here, and we're thankful for you. Well, I had never heard of Dr. S.M. Lockridge before. I still don't really know who he is, other than a pastor. And, uh, but in the second year, or first or second year of college, I became very familiar with one specific sermon from this man. The sermon's titled, That's My King. Here's a little snippet, and I'm going to try to do it in his voice just because it's, yeah, you've you got to listen to it. Um, so I can't, can't do it justice, but here it goes. The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. That's my king. Do you know him? The story we find here in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, it just builds and builds and builds until Jesus is seen and worshipped as God's Son. So I read this little snippet from this sermon because I think Matthew is actually trying to do the exact same thing that Pastor Lockridge was trying to do. He used words, really beautiful words, strung together to show, that's my king asks, do you know him? Matthew has different methods. He uses a series of teaching and series of stories, but he's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to say to us, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Well, in Matthew 10, 34, if you flip back there with me really quick, Matthew 10, 34, just a couple pages before, Jesus actually tells us that he's come to show that not everyone does know him. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and it keeps going on. And it concludes with this, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So Jesus came to bring a sword, to bring a separating uh, method to show who is part of him, who follows him, who has put up their cross to follow him, and who is not. And we actually get a glimpse of this if you start looking in Matthew 13. Jesus starts bringing this sword, this dividing line, when he starts to teach in these like super confusing parables. 
and actually confusing was exactly his intention with these. You see, when the disciples, they finally worked up the courage to say, Jesus, why in the world are you teaching these parable things? They're super confusing because you stop. And he says to them that he actually is speaking to parable, in, in parables in order to thrust this sword even deeper to show even more separation between the people who know Matthew's king and the people who do not know Matthew's king. That's what Jesus is doing in teaching in parables. And that's what Matthew is doing even in chapter 13, the heels of our passage this morning. Matthew's prodding us, kind of asking, do you get it? Do you understand? Is it making sense? Do you know my king, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God? Which side of the sword are you on? Just as he asks these questions to us by teaching in parables in chapter 13, I think he's asking these same questions to us in chapter 14 in stories, specifically our story in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. The question you and I face this morning is how will we respond to Matthew's king when we see him as he is in this story? Will we see him as the son of God? Let's read together. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray as we jump in. I ask, Father, for you to give us all a deep, heart-gripping look at our Jesus, so that in response to that look, our faith would grow deeper and more full and more wholehearted. Father, we ask that you would cause such a heart-calming look at Jesus to have the profound effect on our faith that it's meant to have. We thank you for showing us who you are and presenting your Son as the Son of God. And it's in his, his name we pray. Amen. Well, what I really long for all of us to understand this morning is our main point. So if you like taking notes, this is the main point. Our Jesus is the Son of God who comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith. I think that's what all this passage is pointing us to see, that our God, our Jesus, is the Son of God who comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith. I do. I think this truth rings sound and clear, and we see each phrase of this main point from three separate scenes of our story. 
So three scenes that direct our focus towards this main point, that Jesus is the Son of God who comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith. Scene one. Scene one is that our Jesus comes to us in our torment. This is verses 22 to 27. Our Jesus comes to us in our torment. Setting up, I think it's important to know that before verse 22, Jesus had just gotten news of John the Baptist beheading. So, understandably so, he, he wanted to get alone with his father, but he couldn't. There's a crowd following him. And so that's where we see Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people. So after the baskets of leftovers are collected, that's exactly where we land in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, probably right before darkness hit, he was there alone. Jesus wanted to get alone with his father to pray. And notice how he didn't wait for the perfect moment for it all to work together for him to have time alone. Really quickly, Cross and Crown, I just ask, do you purposefully make time to be alone with God? To pray to him? Do you make one-on-one time with him a part of your schedule? Jesus didn't get through his life apart from regular, isolated, honest prayer. Yet without much airtime given to Jesus on the mountain, the camera actually pans over in verse 24 from Jesus on the mountain to the disciples in their boat. Look at verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So notice the contrast here, right? While Jesus had finally gotten alone and seems to be at peace, the disciples were getting absolutely demolished in the middle of the sea. Now, now two things stick out to me in this, this whole situation with the disciples. Firstly, I think back to verse 22, which we just, just read. It says that Jesus made the disciples go before him in a boat to the other side. So here's Jesus, who only chapters before, in chapter 8, had spoken to a storm, and it stopped. And, and now... Jesus is kind of saying, all right, brothers, thanks for collecting all the loaves and getting these baskets. All right, now, like, go. All right, get on that boat. I, w- I just know you guys need to get going. He made them get into the boat to the other side. So it seems like Jesus, who speaks to storms, practically sent his disciples to get a beat down in the middle of the lake by sending him when he did. So I wonder, why would, why would Jesus do that? He knew exactly what was going to happen to the disciples, and he sent them straight towards it. That's one thing that stuck out, and it'll come together here. But here's the second thing that sticks out to me. is this Just the whole setting of the disciples' torment. When you read the Gospels, you kind of like imagine the Sea of Galilee to just be this giant sea, or at least like one of the Great Lakes. I grew up in Ohio, Lake Erie. It's really nasty, but at least it's like a lake you can't, you can, you can't see across the other side. So that's kind of what I would constitute a lake. So a sea, surely. Sea of Galilee is massive. And I, I thought this until I had the opportunity to go, and I was really surprised and confused that the sea is really not that big. And so that also kind of makes being far from the land not seem that terrifying, right? Well, I also just couldn't imagine after being there that there would be giant waves 
I mean, there's just, there's not much wind, and there weren't waves when I was there. So I kind of started tracking down all these details, right? Where exactly on the lake were they, where this was happening, and maybe that can explain why there were big waves. Or how big do waves get there? Like, okay, like Sea of Galilee, do waves get really big? And maybe, you know, wh- what are the boats like? Were they just in a tiny, tiny boat? So this kind of explains it more. And after looking at all these questions, I think what I learned what I w- that was that I was looking for the wrong point from the text. The point wasn't which direction they were sailing or how long a trip normally takes across the sea. The point was loud and clear in the text. The point is that the situation the disciples were in was no coincidence. It was no coincidence. Jesus made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side when he did, knowing they'd be somewhere in the middle of the lake when they'd get beaten by the waves and face this crazy headwind. And this crazy headwind is actually uh, in control by a god of the winds, right? Listen to Amos 4.13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And so, also, earlier in Matthew, Jesus seems to be showing this same kind of wind control power that the God, the Lord of hosts, has. Matthew eight twenty six to 27. Then he, Jesus, rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, Matthew is purposefully presenting this story to us in a way that puts on display the activity and control of God throughout the entire thing. He put the disciples right where he wanted them, right when he wanted them. The timing, the location on the sea, the wind, the waves, all of it was purposeful and intentional. So I ask again, the question written in between the lines of this passage. This is Matthew's king. Do you know him? Do you see him for who he is? Active and in control of every detail of the disciples' situation? to put them right where he wanted them so that he could reveal himself as the God who comes to his people in their torment. Isn't that awesome? Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes. It's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. I think most of us would probably agree that these hours are probably like the most painful hours of like the entire day. So let's just call them the alone hours. I think uh, unless you're like going to bed at 8 p.m. and waking up at 4 to like pump iron and read your Bible, these are very much like the alone hours of your day. Moms of newborns, you know these alone hours very well. Or maybe those of you who work night shift. Or maybe all of us at, at some point in our life when there was something so painful, so hard, that was beating down at you, that you just could not find sleep. You feel utterly alone. There's no one there to listen to your fears, to comfort you in your cries. You feel like you shouldn't be awake. Nobody else is awake. 
One biblical counselor, he, he described this fourth watch of the night like this. He says, It seems to be where our fears catch up with us. The pain from the day we just got through and the pain we tend to borrow from the next day gang up on us at that point. Like a big storm beating down on a little boat. Friends, these alone hours are where we really begin to question whether God cares, whether God sees, whether God's going to do something about our torment. You ever been there? The disciples were there. Look at verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Won't you cherish these words, friends? That Jesus came to his own in the hours where there was no one else to hear them and no one else to hear their worries and no one else to silence their fears. He does the same for you and for me. Our Jesus comes to us in our torment and nothing stands in his way. Listen to Psalm seventy-seven, sixteen: When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. When the waters saw you, oh Jesus, they were afraid. Jesus walked all over the very thing that was putting the disciples in such torment so that they would know that he is God. Our Jesus comes to us in our torment and he also silences our fears. Look at verse 26 to 27. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, said it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Honestly, I think the disciples had like a lot of good reasons to be terrified and to scream. Uh, They must have been exhausted, which means emotions are turned up. There was an external force beating down on them. And then you got the whole thing where like the lake's not frozen, but there's like a person on top of it. And so you can kind of understand why they wouldn't just be like, ah, it's got to be somebody we know. And I wonder if you can also relate to such an ex- a situation. Exhausted, emotions heightened, an external force, maybe your job, school, a relationship is beating on you, and you throw in an unfamiliar circumstance, something you haven't seen before, and you just baked up the perfect concoction for you to respond completely out of fear. I imagine many of us have been there. But notice how Jesus responds to the fear-filled person. He doesn't rebuke. He comforts. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus comes to his people in their torment, and his method for comforting them is assuring them of his presence. What, what an interesting way to comfort someone, right? Now, now, if I witnessed a car crash, and I run up and come to the people who were injured, and I say, Hey, do not be afraid. It is I. I'm here. It is all okay. That doesn't bolster any confidence. It doesn't give anyone comfort. In order for that statement to have the effect of actually calming someone, telling them everything's going to be okay, they would have to know why my presence means everything's going to be okay. Why is it that me being there is going to make it okay? So why is the fact that Jesus saying, hey guys, it's okay. Don't freak out. I'm here. Why does that bring confidence that everything's going to be okay? Well, it's because Jesus 
and his presence on the scene literally meant Emmanuel, God with us. So when Jesus says, take heart, do not be afraid, it is I. It is the God of the universe here in my situation. Everything's going to be okay. Jesus would be capable to make all things well. Jesus is why they shouldn't be afraid. Jesus is why they can take courage. And Jesus is why they can have faith. You wonder, how can, how can our fears be silenced? How can we be comforted in our torment? Friends, we cherish these words from Jesus. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Notice then that Matthew, again, is telling to us, this is my king. This is my king who comes to me in my torment. And the question in this first scene is, do you know him? Do you see yourself as the tormented and the afraid? Do you see God as the one who walks on the water in the fourth watch of the night to come to you in your beating and silence your fears with his presence? So that's scene one. Our Jesus comes to us in our torment. These next two are a little faster. Scene two. Our Jesus comes to us despite our little faith. Verses 28 to 31. Our Jesus comes to us despite our little faith. Okay, so now Jesus is on the scene and everything's, you know, a little better. And then in enters our guy, Peter. Uh, Now there's a sense in which the disciples, all of them, are models that we can see ourselves in. But I think Peter has this unique gift to just like, we, I think we especially see ourselves in him. So let's, let's watch closely at what Peter does here. Verses 28 to 29. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now first, this maybe kind of seems a little confusing uh, like, is, is Peter testing Jesus? You know, like, hey, you know, if you're the real Jesus, you'd really, like, just tell me to come out on the water. Is that what he's doing? I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think what's more likely is that Peter sees Jesus and hears Jesus in faith. He knows what he's capable of and who Jesus really is, and he wants to partake in this awesome miracle with his Savior. My favorite Gospel of Matthew scholar, he, um, correlates Peter to Wile E. Coyote. I don't know if you guys have watched Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote. Um, basically, this coyote is so committed to this extremely fast Roadrunner and chasing him and catching him that he just goes everywhere trying to keep up with this guy. And there's this like classic scene where the Roadrunner is like full speed and just like stops right on the edge of a cliff. And Wiley the Coyote very much does not stop at the end of the cliff. He keeps going past the cliff, and he's like 20 feet plus, like, far from the cliff, and he, like, is no longer has earth underneath him. Right? His passion to catch this roadrunner sent him off that cliff. And I think his passionate faith just sent Peter off the edge of the boat. But then, like Wiley, when he looks down and realizes there's no more earth, realizes what's about to happen— so to Peter, he looks at the winds and the waves, and he, his humanity just kicks in. Verse 30, look. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Notice that this was the exact opposite of what Jesus told them in verse 27. Do not be afraid. Peter's afraid. I wonder if you can identify with Peter. You've mustered up the courage to to take a step in faith, to not waste your life, to live meaningfully for Jesus, to kill the sin in your life, and do incredible things for God. You've seen Jesus for who he really is, and you have such great love for him that you are just moved to act in faith, and you're ready to finally live your life meaningfully for him and take the gospel seriously and take your sin seriously. And then it all just falls to nothing. Disappears because your humanity hit in. That persistent sin came back. Your anger flared up again. Your fear, your anxiety took over. And your attempt to step out in faith dwindled into a sinking mess. What happened? What happened with Peter? What happens with us when that happens? Look at verse 31. I think we get a little bit more explanation. What happened to Peter? And what happens to us when we go through this like stepping out in faith and failure cycle? Step out in faith, fail. Step out in faith, fail. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What Jesus pointed out is that Peter's so-called fear in the verse before is actually better defined as little faith and doubt. So fear, but then Jesus says this is actually little faith and doubt. See, Peter believed that the winds and the waves were a threat to him, a.k.a. he was afraid, which ultimately led to him being uncertain about Jesus' control of the situation, a.k.a. doubting Jesus and his power. So his faith, it was, it was gutsy, and it was strong, but then it failed. Doesn't that happen to us so often? You're so ready to step out in faith, and you just keep failing, and you keep failing. And this time you want to do it better. But you fear, and you doubt, and your faith is little. Notice the bigger picture. How did Jesus handle Peter when he did these things? when he's flailing in the water because he doubted. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. His Jesus came to him in his torment and in his little faith and despite of his little faith. His Jesus reached out his arm in his doubt and in his failing and Jesus took hold of him. How comforting it is to have the saving hand of Jesus take hold of us despite our little faith and in our failing. I think this is so comforting. I think Peter's just exhibit A, that part of being a disciple is having little faith and failing miserably, sometimes being controlled by fear instead of faith. That's just the story of disciples, isn't it? You know this. If you're a disciple of Christ, you know that part of following Jesus is that you fail miserably sometimes. But remember, Peter wasn't just a failure. Poor guy, I think he gets a bad rap sometimes. He had that wily coyote, full-hearted, wholehearted, passionate faith that sent him off the edge of the boat. Cross and crown, this is what God wants from us. Not a perfect faith, but a wholehearted faith. 
that's fueled by knowing that Jesus comes to us in our torment and that Jesus comes to us despite our failing in our little faith. And if you know that king who comes to you despite your little faith, you're being called this morning to a deeper and a more wholehearted, wily coyote, Peter-like faith. A faith that moves you to step out into seemingly impossible situations for the sake of Christ. So here in scene two, Matthew says again, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Do you know this king? Scene one, our Jesus comes to us in our torment. Scene two, our Jesus comes to us despite our little faith. Leads us to our final scene, the last two verses. Scene three, our Jesus is the son of God. Our Jesus is the son of God. Look with me at verse 32 to 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So this entire story has actually been building to this reaction and this confession, worshipping Jesus and saying, He is the Son of God. It's not just Matthew kind of tying a bow on it so he can just move on, like, great, Jesus, worship, woo. Uh, No, he is purposefully closing the story to help us see this is his king. Do you know him? This is the son of God. Do you know him? Matthew, he's been poking us and prodding us. Do you get it? Is it hitting you? Do you understand? Do you know my king, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God? So in this story, the king we've seen presented by Matthew is one who comes to us in our torment and is one who comes to us despite our little faith. But what Matthew is punching in here at the end is who does Jesus come as when he comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith? What authority, what status does Jesus come to us with? Look at verse 32. It tells us all we need. We find our answer to what authority, what status Jesus comes in in the completely calm waters of the Sea of Galilee that morning. The wind ceased as Jesus entered the boat. And that climactic moment was plenty enough for the disciples to worship him and declare who he was. I sure hope that's plenty enough for us. So I tried to take you along with the disciples through each scene so that in this final scene, you also would bow your knees with the disciples saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That confession is what Matthew wanted to highlight the entire story. This is who Jesus is as he comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith. He's the Son of God. Well, hopefully you're asking, well, what's the importance of him being the Son of God? What does that mean? Well, Matthew 4 earlier made it clear that only one God is worshipped No one else can accept worship. Yet here, Jesus receives worship as the Son of God. Jesus receives worship because being the Son of God means that he has the same power and same authority and same glory as the one true God. What this means, friends, is that Jesus has the power and status to save people from their sins. Jesus is able to save you from your sins and able to save me from my sins because he truly is the Son of God. And listen to this. No amount of doubt or fear can change that reality. Even in our torment, even when we feel utterly alone, 
even in our little faith, when we don't fully understand who God is, He really is who He says He is. And He says He's the Son of God who came to rescue sinners from their rebellion and from the wrath of God by taking His life on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin and the wrath of God on our behalf to give us rest. Jesus is the Son of God who comes to us in our torment and despite our little faith. And and Matthew wants you to wrestle. Which side of the sword are you on? Do you know this king? Friend, if you're here and you realize that you have been on the side of the sword that rejects Jesus, separated from God because of unbelief, I pray that you see this morning that you need a Savior who can save. You need a Savior who is God. One who is in complete control of all things and who comes to sinners in their torment and who comes to sinners in the midst of their little faith. If you see that this morning, this passage, it calls you to respond as Peter responded. When he realized he was drowning, he called out to the Son of God, Jesus, save me. Come to the Son of God in prayer. Call on Him with a whole heart of faith to save you from your sin. I promise you, He is who He says He is. You come to Him, He will save. One final time, I present this to you. The Bible says He's the King of the Jews. The Bible says He's the King of Israel. He's the King of righteousness. He's the King of the ages. He's the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. That's my King. I wonder, do you know Him? My King is a sovereign King. No means of measure can define His limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. That's my King. I wonder if you know Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for this story of Matthew 14. We thank you for revealing your son coming to us in our torment and despite our little faith. And not only that, but he comes to us as your beloved son who has came, who has come to save sinners from their sin. Lord, we we need that glimpse of Jesus daily. In the fourth watch of the night, in our torment, we need to be comforted by who Jesus is. So Jesus, we praise you for your kindness that you come to us in our torment. We are such failures so often and we admit that this morning and we praise you, Jesus, that you have come to us despite our failing as the Son of God. May we see you as you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.